Has the world gone crazy? Life is difficult. When you need help, where do you turn? Welcome to Christian Impact, impacting your life with spiritual truth. I am Dr. Kelly Blanton, and I'm sharing practical truths in the Bible that can truly change your life. Today is February 28th, 2024. We continue our series, Kingdom Legacy. We are on Song of Solomon, Chapter 8. Oh, that you were like my brother, who nursed in my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. She who used to instruct me, I would cause you to drink of her spiced wine, of the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved? I awaken you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is as strong as death, jealously as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Nor can the flood drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. We have a little sister, and she has no breast. What shall we do for our sister in the day when she is spoken for? Is she a wall? Will he build upon her a battlement of silver? And if she is a door, will we enclose her with boards of cedar? I am a wall, and my breast like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He leased the vineyard to keepers. Everyone was to bring for its fruit a thousand silver coins. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit, two hundred. You who dwell in the gardens, the companions listen to your voice. Let me hear it. Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spice. And there we have the last chapter, chapter 8 of Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs. I felt very tongue-tied reading that portion of scripture today. And it's one of those poetry, I don't... I just don't want to say poetry because most English poetry seems to rhyme and have rhythm. This is poetry, but it's translated poetry. And so anytime you translate something from another language, it doesn't have the same rhyme, rhythm, and beat sound to it because it is a translation. And I could not definitely feel a a rhythm as I was reading that. It caused me to get tongue-tied. But let's, let's get into this because... Some of those tongue-tying words and phrases have some deep meaning. And so we jump in. The bride and the bridegroom are speaking for the last times. 
And uh, usually when you have final words, I don't know, that might be a good title, the final words, uh, they're important. There's meaning to them. And there are many of these scripture passages that we're going to look at are conclusions to what we've been reading in the previous seven. Verse one, oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breasts. I know this is a weird thing to be saying in a poetry. It goes on and says, if I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. You know, if you were trying to really look at this and interpret with some modern understanding, uh, you would not get it. Uh, it. It sounds sort of crazy. Um, culturally, in biblical times, kissing was not considered decent in public unless it was between blood relatives. In other words, you didn't see husband and wife slopping it down. Boyfriend, girlfriends, they weren't. There was no public kissing. You didn't do that. The only people you could kiss in public and be culturally okay was your blood relatives, your mother, your dad, your brother, your sister. These were the only people you could show that type of display of affection in public. It's just not acceptable. Um, this is not the same thing as some Europeans or Middle Eastern people that do the kiss on the cheek. That's that's not what we're talking about, this is a, an affection of love that you, that you just is, is not, that is not acceptable. And so I bring this up because the bride is speaking here and she's wanting to describe her love that she has for the groom. And she's wanting people to know, she's wanting to express herself. And now, if you're looking in your Bible, if you're paying attention, uh, last week, chapter 7 sort of kind of ended in mid-thought, and chapter eight's picking up in this mid-thought. And so um, we're picking up this mid-thought where the bride is really describing her love for the groom and how she would she wants to, to, to kiss him. She wants to kiss him outside. She wants everyone in the public to know how much she loves him. And because of that, that's where you get the beginning. Oh, that you're like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. It would be acceptable for her to kiss her brother in this public setting in the culture at this time. That would be acceptable. So she wishes that the groom was so that she could do this in public and not be looked down upon. Now, what's interesting to know this is that even though she says that's what she wants, she doesn't. In other words, she understands the necessity of maintaining certain aspects of the relationship as private. There are some things that about our relationship with the Lord that is best left private, that is not for unbelievers to understand. The Apostle Paul, uh, 1 Corinthians, when he's talking about tongues, he says he wishes that we could all pray in tongues like he does. But then he turns right around and says, it's better uh, to speak in a known language than in an unknown tongue in the presence of unbelievers because they don't understand. Jesus also cautioned us in Matthew 7. Jesus cautioned us about casting our pearls before swine. They don't, swine doesn't understand. They just trample pearls over. There are certain aspects about our relationship with the Lord that is not just for everyone's 
understanding. And not just unbelievers, but there are sometimes believers, especially believers who are not as mature, that there's certain aspects of relationship that they just do not understand or can't understand. And so we're called to uh, be a little bit more discreet and understanding of the people around us, even though we wish people could see the, the passion that we have. Verse two, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother. See who used to instruct me. Again, this is the bride talking about how much she loves the, the Jesus and she wants to, to take him to her mother's house. Um, we've already had this once. And you have to break away from this whole, he's not talking about a mother God. That's not what we're talking about here. Uh, the concept with the church and, 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 and the Lord, uh, you know, because God doesn't have a mother. So what does this mean? Uh, you have to understand what, what mother means. Uh, the mother is, 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 gives birth. And so when she says, I, I wish to lead you, she's she talking about Jesus into the house of my mother, the person that, that birthed me. She used to instruct me. Well, this is the church speaking. You know, we're talking about the church, the bride of Christ speaking. Um, where was the church born? No, we're not just talking about Jerusalem. But you see, as believers, we have to be born again. We have to be born again. And so this out of the church is born. Uh, the bride wants Jesus in the place where she's been, had spiritual conception of birth. For a believer, this is, I, I, I wish, I wish you could, I want Jesus to come to the place where I, I was saved to she who instructed me. And now let me put this in a modern culture concept. Okay. I have to be careful with my words here. Because modern cultural concept, I'm going to use the word church. Now, in biblical concept, the way I've been using it, church is the believers. Here, I'm going to use it as a place, like a building, a congregation. The bride of Christ wants Jesus to come into the church where she was born again and has received spiritual instruction. In other I mean, it's a really powerful thing when you begin to see the picture here is of the bride wanting Jesus to come into the, the quote, church, the, the, the four walls of the congregation. How many of our churches, there's no presence of God in the churches anymore? I'm not saying all churches, but I'm saying there's a lot of churches that are sick. There is no, you walk into a service and there's no real presence of God. He's not there. And this is the bride of Christ saying, oh, I want to invite Jesus into those places. Because for most of us, not all of us, I mean, I was not saved in a church building, but I was definitely instructed and, quote, raised in a church building after I got saved. Many people have given your life uh, inside a church. And, and it's this cry of the bride saying, I, I want to bring you into that. I don't want to go through life experiencing you and you not be there. She, she, she wants to bring him to that place. Uh, again, verse two, I will cause you to drink spice wine, the juice of my pomegranate. Um, this is the bride offering her wine. Usually the wine is the Holy Spirit, but here's the, the bride offering her spirit, her pomegranate juice. This is the best 
of her praise and worship that she wants to pour out on him. Uh, verse 3, his left hand is under my head, his right hand embraces me. We've had this before in a previous chapter. This is this part where the Lord embraces her, the left hand, under her head. Jesus provides support and security. It's it's under it's under our heads where we it's where we think it's 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 what's controlling us. Jesus provides support and security. The right hand, you know, around us, um, not our head but the way the waist, and he's embracing us. Symbolizes compassion and comfort. Um, he's got us secure and security, and he wants us to be comforted by his presence. She, the bride, longs for people to see this, to see how God is both supportive and secure, compassionate and comforts. And then she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. That charge again is a promise. We've had this repeatedly done. The daughters of Jerusalem are other believers, but these are, they, they lack the passion, the first love. They've been just going about the ritual. And she's speaking about don't stir up love until it pleases. Again, you can't rush love in a relationship. Love takes time to develop. And you don't want to insert love and try to awaken it if you haven't actually developed it. If you try to awaken love or something that's not developed it, it, it doesn't mean anything. It's not real. And so, um, and we've gone over, there's many cautions about what happens when you try to stir up and awaken love when you're not ready. Because when you do that, you may try to awaken love in, in something, someone that is, is inappropriate or isn't ready. Um, you need to grow your relationship with the Lord and develop that love. And you don't want to just awaken it just as some fad or some passing trend, because it will always leave you empty. So verse 5, we move in. And now, I know I'm getting ahead of myself here. She she was speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem, of course, right there, about where the hands, how, how Jesus comforts home. And here in verse 5, um, we have someone else is speaking. Uh, a lot of Bibles maybe put a title in, like a relative or, or something like this. This is, uh, I, I, again, I I like the term relative. This is someone else that's got a relationship with the bride, but it's not the bride, okay? And they begin speaking to the bride, and they say, uh, verse 5, Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her beloved? And um, I like to think this is someone amidst the daughters of Jerusalem. I think context-wise that would fit better because she just spoke to the daughters of Jerusalem, a relative there. And who is this? Who is this? In other words, the transformation upon the bride, as we've read through this, where the bride began, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but she's had such a change, a transformation, a being with Jesus through the intimacy that, She's no longer recognizable anymore. I've had this done to me. I've seen students 
that are now grown and in ministry. I've seen it done to them. They, they're serving the Lord. They've gone away for years. They come back. And the, the, the people they grew up with in their church, they look at them and they go, well, who are you? I mean, they know it's you, but they can't recognize you because you've been transformed. You're so different. They don't recognize you because of the fact that Jesus has changed you. It goes on and it says, I awakened you under the apple tree. There your mother brought you forth. There she who bore you brought you forth. Again, this goes with who is this coming up from the wilderness and leaning on their beloved. Uh, the the best way I can really describe this and, and maybe use another passage is when Jesus went home to, to I don't want to say Nazareth, but Galilee, the, the region that Nazareth was in when he was born. And the people, he couldn't do many miracles because of unbelief. And the, the people said, who is this? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Jesus said a prophet uh, can't do much in his hometown. Uh, this is the same thing here. Who's this coming up? The wilderness leaning on her beloved. Uh, I awakened you under the apple tree that your mother brought you forth. She bore you, brought you forth. This uh, this idea is you you were you were you were born here. You you're you're part of the. It's like the church you were became a Christian in and you grew up in, and they they see you and and they they see you as this, this little child. And you've gone off and you matured and you come back and Jesus transformed you. But they almost don't want to refuse that. Or maybe they knew what you were like before you were saved. And then you get saved and you go off and God transforms you. come back and they want to say, well, who do you think you are? See, this gets to with this. I awakened you under the apple tree. Of course, the tree represents people. The apple tree, we talked about this. The apple, apple tree is not indigenous to the area. It's not that they didn't know what apples were, but... You have to be very intentional to plant this. And so that's how awakened you on the apple tree. That is, we were there when you were saved. We were there when you were awakened, when you came out of your slumber, where your mother brought forth. This is where you were spiritually born, born again. You know, we remember when you received Christ. We remember when you walked down the aisle. We remember this person. And they just, they almost don't want to accept the transformation. Of course, the leaning on your beloved, uh, this is the same thing, sort of an idea like with Jacob, when God, when Jacob wrestled with God, God touched his hip and, and smashed it. And so, um, when he encounters Esau and his family and everyone else that he sent forward, he was the last one to come across. He came out of the wilderness or coming across the Jordan and he was leaning on his staff because he was, he was crippled. But you see, it was, wasn't just a staff. Jacob was symbolically leaning on the Lord and God had changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And Esau couldn't hardly recognize him. He was so different. And, and that's one reason why Jacob, Esau didn't kill him. God had changed his heart when he saw him with those 400. You know, he didn't, he wasn't coming out there with 400 men because he missed his brother. He's bringing 400 men because he had bad thoughts. But as he came, God did something to his heart. And when he saw him, uh, Esau was compelled, uh, not to kill him. And, 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 and there was that change. That's the change on the bride. But some of the family members are having issues with this. And when they do this, and they basically, who do you think you are? And they belittle you. If you've, if you've gone to the ministry and you go back to the place like this, someone somewhere is going to try and belittle you. It just happens. But notice here we can see the maturity on the bride. Because the bride immediately says, um, to her beloved, 
She's saying this to her beloved, not to the person who said this. She turns to the beloved and says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealously, as, cr- jealously, as cruel as the grave. We'll just stop right there for a second. I want to keep just reading, but the bride turns to the Lord. In other words, when the criticism comes, she doesn't even acknowledge it. She just turns to the Lord and she says, set me as a seal upon your arm, a seal upon your heart, upon your arm. What is a seal? You know, let's get this. Uh, a, a seal was uh, an inscription. It, it carried the authority of uh, whoever the seal, whatever the symbol on the seal represented. And it it, it 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 was it was for a guard, for protection. You would seal up letters like with wax, and you put your seal on it, so that when it was delivered to you in those times, you would or you know, and I said letter it could be probably a scroll or something, but Paul sent letters. But if the seal was still attached, then you knew that what was on the inside was original, and when you broke that seal and opened it, you knew that it was coming directly from that person. And so that seal guarded the contents. Jesus, when he went and when he died and they put him in the tomb, the the Romans put a seal on the stone, meaning that the authority of Rome said only the Romans could open this. And if you break this seal, then all of Rome comes and gets you. And they had armies to do that. And so it, it carried something. So here the bride says, Set me or like make me a seal upon your heart, you know, and, and so the idea is that she wants she wants to become a, a seal. She wants then the heart. She wants to be guarded and protected with her emotions about him. You know, the seal in the arm it represents being guarded and sanctified with your actions because your arm is, is how you, you do and accomplish things. Your heart is your emotions. So when she's saying, make me a seal upon your heart, upon your arm, she wants what she does, her emotions and her actions to be protected, to be sanctified, to only feel as he feels, to only do as he does. She doesn't want to react from this religious attack from her relatives. She doesn't want to just go off her emotions she wants to go off the emotions of the Lord. This is from maturity and growth. And she follows up, for love is as strong as death and as jealously as cruel as the grave. And you get into the, the flames or flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Listen, she's talking about the love that she and he have for each other. You know, death and the grave, they symbolize strength because uh, they don't relinquish. They're 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 like they're guaranteed, and they never re- relinquish their hold. Death in the grave, and the love of God and the love of, that God has is now being compared to this. That that when God loves you, it's something that you He will not relinquish. He grabs hold. God's love is as strong as death. God's love is stronger than death because He overcame death and the grave. On the cross, so that which can't be defeated, he defeated. But here he's describing that that love is like this, that he's not going to let it go. The bride's not going to let it go. And this is the description. That's why the bride wants her action, her emotions and her actions to be guarded and sanctified. 
because she wants him because of the, the powerful love they have. She doesn't want to misuse it. The bridegroom is jealous. You know, he's not going to share us with another. And of course, the flames symbolize that consuming passion that, you know, the flames of a fire can never uh, be, be quenched. And what I mean by that is, is a fire will always consume. A fire doesn't ever go on full and stop. It, it, a fire will continue to eat until there is nothing left. It cannot. It's, it's the, the appetite of a fire can't be quenched. The love of God's cannot ever be quenched. He, he, he. That's his love. And verse seven: Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give love for all the wealth of his house, to be utterly despised. <clears throat> the love of God, unlike a fire that if I made in my fire pit or something. If you know, if I needed to, I could get a bucket of water and I could pour it on it and put it out. It would that would quench it. It would. But God's love is a so much that if you even if you sent a flood, His fiery passion would never go out. And it's interesting because there's a scripture I think of that says, "When the enemy comes at you like a flood, the Lord rises a standard, and a standard is a banner against it." What's God's banner? His banner over us is love. We saw that in an earlier chapter. And so, yeah, so the idea of this is that you think about like Noah's flood could not stop the love of God. If, if you put all the ocean water on the flame of God, God's flame would eat it up. It can't be quenched by that. And it goes on to say, if a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be despised. We can't buy God's love. If we could buy it, if it was something that we could obtain, it would be despised. In other words, it wouldn't be worth much. If, if we could go out and buy it, then we really wouldn't care so much about it because it's something that's within our grasp. But God's love is not. It is something that we cannot purchase. It is something that is more valuable than anything that we could ever, ever have. And so therefore, because of that, we don't despise it. We value it. We understand the treasure that it is. And so just looking at, the again, the bride's response, she talked about the seal upon her heart, which is the security of God's love. She talked about the seal on her arm, the protection of God's love in her action. Um, the love is as strong as death. That's the strength of love. It's just jealous. jealous uh, that's the emotion of exclusive. God loves you. Just one. Just one. Uh the describes as the flames of human fire. This is the passion of his love. Uh, it can't be quenched. This is the endurance of God's love. It's worth all the wealth of the world. This is the value of God's love. So her response into the, who, who is this? Who are you? Weren't you born here? Is all about God's love for her and her love for him. And it's directed from her to him. So it's like, I'm going to talk about the God's love, and I'm not even going to look at the person making the accusation. I'm going to look at Jesus. I'm going to say, Jesus, you love me, and this is what you're worth. This is what you mean. <clears throat> they respond. Verse 8, we have our response to this. Some Bibles say these are the, the Shulamite or the, the, the bride's brothers. 
They say, we have a little sister. She has no breast. What shall we do for our sister in the day she is spoken for? Again, if you're reading this, this is one-on-one. It sounds crazy. Talking about brothers, talking about their flat-chested sister. But again, we're talking about the church and Jesus. So these are brothers. So again, these are these are other believers within the church that just they, they don't have that love. They're like the daughters of Jerusalem. And they acknowledge that they're they're because of the sister brother thing, these are believers, but they say she has no breasts. In other words, she's underdeveloped, or i.e., she's immature. She's not fully grown because uh, breasts represent being able to nourish. That's what women use to nourish their children in birth. Um, but they say she has no breast. What should we do for our sister today when she's spoken for? Spoken for is the day that she's supposed to be married. So they had, so they're saying that their sister was immature and not capable of, of being married. In this context, they're saying that Again, because this goes right to the question of who is this coming out leaning on her beloved? And then she just talks about the love of the Lord. And then these brothers pop up and say, wait a minute, you were too immature. You were too this. How can you possibly be the bride? How can you be the bride of Christ? How can you be this person and love the Lord when you were so immature? They then go on to say, if she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we would enclose her with boards of cedar. So when they're addressing her as a wall, you're like, well, well what's that about? And, and they're talking about the levels of her immaturity that they want to protect her, that, that, that she needs to be protected from the outside and that, if she was a wall, they would they would do these silver embattlements. In other words, they would they would strengthen and make her walls high so that the out, outside couldn't get in. If she has a door, they put the cedars. In other words, they're going to they're hammer close the door so that no one can get in. And sometimes you see people in churches that they they want to keep you immature. They won't. They don't want you to move on with the Lord. They want to leave you immature. They want to leave you, I say closed up, but the bride has come to this point where not only is she mature, but she's wanting to engage in the world. She's wanting to tell the world about Jesus. She's not afraid. And so in in verse 10, the bride speaks and says, I am a wall. Not if I was a wall, you'd do this. She goes, oh, I am a wall. And my breast-like towers, I became in his eyes as one who found peace. And so she she, she turns this over because her wall is not a, a wall to keep you out, but her wall is now a position of security, but she's been redeemed by Christ. <clears throat> and so she's not afraid of spiritual warfare. She's been redeemed. And she goes, I am that she is a warrior. For the Lord, her breasts are like towers. In other words, she is capable of nurturing others, of building them up. You know, and of course, towers were the places where the watchmen would be. And so she, not only is she capable of nurturing 
and but she's also there there are also positions of of warfare where she can where she can discern what's going on uh, again your watchmen would be in towers they're watching uh the enemy uh see what's going on and she's then i became the eyes as one who's found peace so not only has she gained spiritual discernment but she's found peace because of the prince of peace She goes on, and let's, let's talk about this, this Prince of Peace and what she's found. And she's going to elaborate this a little bit. because She goes, Solomon had a vineyard at Balhaman. He leased his vineyard to keepers, and everyone was to bring forth his fruit, a thousand silver coins. Uh, Balhaman. It's translated Lord of Multitude. Sometimes Multitude uh uh, you know, Lord of Haman, Lord of the Multitude. Um, I know I'm pausing here. I'm just trying to word this. I want to choose my words here. We talked earlier about everyone has a vineyard. This is your place of ministry. This is what God has given you to minister and to keep. <clears throat> And again, she's replying to her brothers, talking about her immaturity. And she goes, she is. And she goes, you know, Solomon. And this is, of course, Solomon wrote the Song of Songs, which is sort of, you know, funny when you think about it. The reference of Solomon has a vineyard. In other words, Solomon has a specific place of ministry. <coughs> and he leased the vineyard to keepers. And everyone was to bring forth its fruit, a thousand silver coins. In other words, Solomon has a vineyard, but he put people in it to keep it for him. And then they were to bring forth a thousand silver coins out of its fruit as payment. Jesus gave many parables about the king going away and leaving people in charge of vineyards. And if you read those parables, nearly all of them is when the king comes back and those keepers of vineyards did not do their jobs. And they beat up messengers and things, and then and, and some of them they even killed the king's son. And then it always ended. What do you think the king is going to do to these keepers who didn't do what he wanted and did all these evil things? The bride says, "You know, Solomon, uh, he leased his vineyard to keepers, and they're supposed to bring forth this." And then she says in verse twelve, "My own vineyard is before me." We had the chapter where she received her vineyard and she took care of it. But if you remember in chapter one, the bride had a vineyard that she had neglected. She had neglected her own vineyard because she was so busy tending for everyone else's vineyards. Here we are, and she's now, because of her relationship, an intimate relationship with Jesus, She's now doing her calling. She's doing the, the, the ministry that God has given her to do. And we now begin to see this isn't about her being immature. This isn't about them trying to protect her. This is about, you know, who do you think you are? This is about a, a religious group that doesn't have passion for Jesus wanting her to leave the relationship and go back to taking care of their vineyards and neglecting her own. Because that's where we saw her in chapter 1. And now they're wanting her to go back to that. She says, I have my own vineyards before me. You, O Solomon, 
may have a thousand, and those who tend its fruit two hundred. So here, the Solomon references that, you know, the, the king, you've got a thousand vineyards, and you've leased them out to these vineyards to keep, and they're supposed to bring forth a thousand silver coins. That's the fruit. But those who tend its fruit is 200. In other words, they're not bringing forth the thousand silver coins. They're only bringing 200 forth because they're not doing the work. And it's because they're not even the keepers of the vineyards. The vineyards belong to Solomon and he's not keeping them. You know, for, for context, we, we, this is a, a sort of a, a, a joke, but it's a true thing. I've seen it in leadership seminars and things with pastors and church leadership. And they, they talk about it in the church. You've got 20% of the people that do 80% of the work. But I want us to understand that what's going on is that we're supposed to be producing 100% fruit, but we're only producing 20%. You know, get that 80-20 thing. You can almost reverse that. You got a few people doing all the work. But the problem is, is that you have people that are taking care of other people's ministries. And because it's not theirs, they're not really producing what should be produced because it's not theirs. They're not the keepers. The only way to birth forth fruit in abundance is to do what you're called to do. Not do someone else's calling and then neglect what you're supposed to do because you don't produce for them. I mean, you might produce a little bit. They're, 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 they're trying to take the little bit you'll produce for them and stack it up. No one is, is, is in the right in this. And then we see in verse 13, this is where the groom, Jesus speaks, the beloved. He says, you who dwell in gardens, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. So he's saying, yeah, you who live in garden, all you companions, listen for your voice. You know, listen to what you're saying. Can you hear yourself? Let me hear it. There's a thing about Judgment Day where it says that God's going to judge us by our own standards. That's a very scary concept because, you see, we're all hypocrites. That's what's so wrong with the Pharisees. The Pharisees would tell you, don't, don't do this. And then they went out and did it. They're guilty by their own standards. That's why Jesus says, before you start talking about someone splintering their eye, better make sure you got your own plank taken out. Because there's this standard of judgment. And he's saying, well, let me hear, let me hear what you have to say. You're judging because they're judging his bride now, calling her immature and things because they want her to come work for them. When in reality, she's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And now he's going, this is like the Lord saying, well, let me hear it. Let me, let me judge you by your own words. And then verse 14, the bride answers and says, make haste, my beloved, be like a gazelle, a young stag on the mountains of spices. Make haste. And you know, another way to say that is come quickly. Revelation ends with the bride saying, you know, make haste, even so, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come Lord Jesus. That's how Revelation ends. And then Jesus responds, behold, I come quickly. Here the bride ends this with the groom saying, listen to what you're saying. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to hear what you say. I, I'm going to judge you by this. And then the bride's response is, come quickly, Lord. 
And of course, it's like a gazelle, a stag jumping over the mountains. We've talked about that imagery, about what that means. But it says, come quickly. And so that's where we end with the bride telling her groom to come quickly in the midst of a religious group trying to stop her from being who she is. That's so much where we are today, believers in Christ. There's, there's, there's this religious element in our country that wants us to be something other than what God's called us to be. I'm not talking against God's churches. I'm, uh, we, we got man's churches. It doesn't matter what the name or the denomination or thing on there. There are believers everywhere, but there's also corruption. There's, there's the same things that Jesus had. We have Pharisees and Sadducees walking in all places. And what we need to do is we need to be consumed with our Lord and the vineyard that he's called us to. And when they start hurling the accusations, we just need to turn and focus on the love of the Lord and say, come quickly, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, God, for this study. Lord, I pray, God, that as we've read it, that it stirred all of us to intimacy, God. If, if someone's listening and they've only listened to this one, Lord, I pray that, that they would go back and listen to all of them, God. That, Lord, that they would increase in their intimacy and in their relationship with you, Lord, because it's so important, God. We need uh, that relationship, that that personal relationship with you, God. We need your transforming power, God. Help us to tend the ministry, the the the, the place that you called us to be, God. Because where you called us to be, God, is, is 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 the perfect thing for us, God. And you've made us all for purpose, all for reason, God. And I thank you for that, God. Lord, I thank you for this year, God. I, I pray, God, that you would not only intensify, God, that intimacy we have, God, but, Lord, that you'd help us to grow in our identities in you, God, uh, that, that we'd integrate our faith with you, God. We'd be involved with you, Lord. And, Lord, I thank you for your, your leading us in this year. In Jesus' name, amen. We thank you for listening to this podcast. I know I'm trying to keep it between 20 and 30 minutes, and I've already should gone over that at this point. Thank you for sticking with me. If you want to listen to other teachings you can check those out on our website at www.christianimpact.net that's all one word no space christianimpact.net and until next time god bless (laughs) 